your copy of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue to plot away at this study, this uh, study in Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts and first century Corinth and the implications of such a instruction for us here in our time and in our local church, our ministries and our times of worship. It's really our ultimate uh, objective is to understand what the scripture teaches and then understand what the implications are for us so that we can just be faithful and be conformed to the image of Christ and be useful. So that's what our aim is in this particular study. We're focusing in now, we have been for the last number of weeks, on the listing of the gifts that begin in, I mean, they, they technically begin in verse 8, but I, I like to pick up verse 7 because I think it's a, a, a purpose statement that uh, is helpful to kind of frame up our, our thinking on this as well. <clears throat> but just as a reminder, the broader context of, of this particular study and really the broader context of the letter is one of broad and far-reaching and wide-ranging correction. Um, the, the Corinthian church was riddled with all kinds of, of struggles and challenges and dissensions and um, manifestations of pride and arrogance and worldliness and uh, all those sort of sinful uh, uh, habits, those sinful practices, even, even the uh, merging of their former ways of life and their former belief systems, their former practices and pagan idolatry, all these things sort of found their way into the life of the church at Corinth and into their ministry settings, their assemblies, and uh, found, it, found its way into just their community life. You had believers taking other believers to court to settle issues in secular, godless, uh, legal environments, uh, and, and there was a pettiness to it, and it was creating di- further division in the church. So it was all manner of, of struggle and conflict and dissension, pridefulness, uh, erroneous ideas about um, what it meant to be in Christ and what kinds of power and authority and dominion you would have in this life versus uh, the life to come. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on in this letter. So when we obviously arrive at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the Apostle Paul takes up specifically the study of, of spiritual gifts, we have to kind of keep in mind that, that the thread running through this is a thread of correction and redirection not so much an emphasis on, hey, listen, uh, local church at Corinth, spiritual gifts are important, and they're a big part of, of the empowering of your ministry in the life of the church. So let me give you a detailed sort of step-by-step instruction manual about how to identify your spiritual gift and then the steps you need to take to begin to use it effectively. And then I'll also give you some follow-up principles so that you can kind of evaluate how you're doing. That is not what we have here. Wouldn't that be nice, right? That is not what we have here. I say, wouldn't that be nice? But I don't know that it would be nice. And uh, maybe we'll touch on that as well. But nevertheless, you come in this particular section in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And what you have here is just sort of a rattling off of the Apostle Paul of some of the gifts that were either being discussed, being fought over, or being manifest Uh, in the life of the church in Corinth, or in the life of the New Testament church more broadly. And as we've said, this particular list, and and there's some repeated lists that we'll find as we kind of move through chapter 12, we find our way into chapter 13, and then really more broadly in chapter 14, with an emphasis on a few of the gifts in the context of the assembled uh, body for worship. 
But what we find here really is the Apostle Paul sort of illustrating this central point, or you might say this two points or or two parts of a single point. And that is that there are a variety of gifts. The gifts are varied in nature. They're varied in, uh, in distribution or apportionment, you might say. And they are manifested in a variety of ministry contexts. And they have a variety of effects. So there's this emphasis on variety or the varied nature of them, which gives indication that the the church in Corinth had more narrowly defined what were really the gifts, the really important gifts. And and quite likely, quite probably, they had narrowed that, that giftedness or the effectiveness of gifts in the life of the church. They had narrowed that scope down to the more public Gifts, the more prominent, upfront speaking and teaching gifts, the kinds of gifts that would garner attention and praise and adulation from the people. That was sort of their, their tendency. That was sort of their, their trouble uh, in, in a number of different areas in the life of the church. And so there was this narrowing of, of the understanding or maybe the, the characterization of what really constituted giftedness in the life of the church. And the Apostle Paul is just saying, there, there's a variety, a wide variety, given to each. So every believer who is in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit is given a gift. Wide variety, variety of distribution, variety of ministry contexts, and varieties of effects in the use of these gifts. But there is a singular source. The Spirit alone gives the gifts according to His purpose and according to His sovereign will and design, which should at least be a caution to any of us, and certainly a caution to the Corinthians at that time, in this mindset that we might bring to this discussion or thought process about spiritual gifts that would lead us to say we need to go get our gift. We need to figure out what our gift is so that we can start using it. It's almost like we, in in a, in a subtle way, we sort of flip the script on how the gifts are given and by whom they are given. Spiritual gifts are not ours for the taking. They're the spirits for the giving. And as we've said before, we uh, oftentimes are seeking ways to sort of pick up our little trinket. And again, I know I'm being a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit silly in my descriptions here, and I don't mean to be condescending, but we we have this tendency to want to pick up our gift or, or find our little thing that we can use and, and if we really, we're, we're always struggling with pride, we're always struggling with a desire to be affirmed or recognized or appreciated, and so we bring that into this particular context and this particular consideration, and if, if, you, if you recognize that you know, we're always sort of having to mortify the flesh and all the manifestations of sinful pride, if we are inclined toward sort of desiring affirmation and recognition and we bring that to this this use of or understanding of or identification of spiritual giftedness, there's a little bit of a danger there. We might be looking to say, I want to be able to use my gift because, yeah, I want to be useful, but I also want to know that I'm doing the right thing. We could actually, we could actually pervert a little bit of this into a bit of legalism. This is another box that we need to check to make sure that we're okay with God. Right? So there's all kinds of ways that we can approach the spiritual gifts that really kind of boil down to this idea or this subtle uh, sort of uh, pattern of thinking in our minds that is something other than a recognition that the Spirit is the one that just gives them. 
The Spirit sovereignly gives the gifts. And as we serve and as we engage in body life and as we uh, step into various ministry contexts, whether it's individual conversations with fellow believers or times of prayer together or whether it's in a, a, a more formal sort of structured setting like this, whatever it might be, that as we serve and as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and as we walk in the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, I mean, as we walk in the Spirit, then our gifts are going to manifest. In all these different contexts, whatever those gifts are, We just serve and we're faithful and we're engaged in life in the body of Christ and those gifts will emerge because they're given by the Spirit with the intent that they would be used for the common good, for the building up of the body. Not something that we go get or that we go take, but something that the the Spirit sovereignly gives. So there's this variety and this sameness, this multiplied, multi-factored, multi whatever, you know, multi, just use multi. There's, there's a variety, there's, there's, there's varied nature, and then sameness, same spirit, singular source, all in this main point. So when you get to this list, the Apostle Paul is saying, kind of, for example, here's your list, here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. So we can't go to this list and really kind of dive into it and just really know for sure exactly, you know, what this particular gift means for me right now and what I, how I need to just start using it if I think I have it. It's just not the nature or intent of the list. That being said, we do want to try to understand and unpack and maybe reference other passages of Scripture that might help us put a little more color, put a little more, as they say, meat on the bone, if you want to use that kind of term, uh, to understand what the Apostle Paul is actually talking about when he lists these gifts. So let's look uh, together at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 7, and we'll read down through verse 11. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you see running through this, kind of the bookends of this particular section, verse 7, manifestation of the spirit for the common good, purpose. And then verse 11 Empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportioned to each one individually as He wills. So there's sort of your 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 meaning thread that runs through this list that sort of bookends this particular list. <clears throat> now we've covered in in somewhat a summary fashion. We haven't gone too deep. We, you know, we've 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 dug in a little bit on some of these, but but we've tried to cover at least in in, in a summary fashion. Uh, the utterance or the word or the message of wisdom, that's really a, a speaking gift. That word utterance is the word logos, which is, it refers to speaking or message or word. And then the utterance of knowledge, we, spoke, we talked about that as well. I believe last week we centered in on this uh, gift of faith uh, that we see referenced there in uh, verse 9. And so today we're going to kind of continue to move forward in our list. But when you look at various commentaries on, on this particular section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, 
and really other sections, other, other uh, gift lists that you might find, for example, in Romans and other places, Ephesians and whatnot. One thing that is common as you look at all these different commentaries, I, I would say that, I don't want to say all of them. I, you know, yeah, I've read every single commentary on 1 Corinthians, and I know. It's what a dumb thing to say. Uh, most of the commentaries that I've referenced, which is quite a number, most of them, uh, th- there's a common sort of practice, a common uh, effort that, that is undertaken in their, in their, you know, trying to unpack this particular section of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What you'll find is these discussions that they engage in, in which they're trying to determine how to best group or categorize the gifts. I mean, you'll have some commentaries that will have these little matrix, you know, that has, you know, this is this kind of gift, and they'll have a list there. You know, they'll, they'll, really, they'll really do quite a bit of sort of analysis, looking at other passages of Scripture and other reference points in the New Testament and other gift lists, and they'll try to say, you know, this seems to be this kind of gift. And they'll, they'll, they'll have these categories or these groupings of gifts. That seems to be a very common, a common approach. And, and as you might imagine, there's wide variation amongst these commentators in their various groupings of spiritual gifts because the actual New Testament passages, like we just read one of them, one of the more prominent ones, one of the more uh, detailed ones in terms of just listing them out, uh, you'll, what you find in the New Testament passages that refer to spiritual gifts is that they don't explicitly convey, convey any direct or clear category at all. So it's like you're having to sort of like, you know, one commentator might be like, well, I think that this goes in that category. And another commentator might, well, I think that this is a different, better, this is a better way to describe it. The only slight exception, slight exception, is what we find in, in Peter's letter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, in which he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now here... You do have Peter expressing two explicit categories of gifts. You have speaking gifts and you have serving gifts. But as you may have noticed, Peter does not list any particular gifts under those categories. So you're kind of left back at square one. Even if you take Peter's categories and say, okay, there are two kinds of gifts. There are two ways to group the gifts or categorize the gifts. And so we're going to go, we are people of the book. So we're going to use Peter's categories. There are speaking gifts, and there are serving gifts. Now what? Think about it for a second. If you, obviously, Peter has a different purpose here, by the way. I want to make sure we see that, because it also kind of reinforces what we've already talked about in 1 Corinthians. Peter's focus is obviously not to list out the gifts. His focus is not to give a category and then list all the gifts that might manifest under that category. His focus is very much the same as Paul's focus. He says the gifts are, if you're going to serve, uh, the purpose of them is to serve one another as good stewards of God's uh, varied grace. And then at the end he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So he's just saying in using these gifts, they're intended to be of service in the body for the glory of God. That's the purpose. But if you, come, if you try to come to any meticulous sort of detailed grouping or categorization of spiritual gifts, 
it has to be done with some reasonable measure of, of inference, both in terms of identifying or, or labeling your gift category, serving, speaking, or some other name, but also in terms of how you assign specific gifts to those categories. You have to kind of go to the, the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and read on through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then maybe pick up a little bit of the references at the beginning of chapter 13 and then kind of dig deep into what he talks about in chapter 14. And then you have to bounce over to Romans chapter 12 and maybe you try to even come back to 1 Peter here and say, can I get a little more insight from that? And then you maybe go to Ephesians chapter 4 and you kind of start putting all this together. You have to infer what, what are we going to call this category? What, what are we going to name it? What, what do we think that this, how did this best identify a certain category? And then what are the gifts that come under that category? So, uh, you know, if you think about this from the standpoint of the list we just read, for example, let's say that we're people of the book and we say, you know what, we're going to go with Peter's categories. We're not going to engage in any kind of heretical activity and give anything any other name but speaking, and I'm, I'm kidding, obviously, but speaking and serving gifts, right? So we're, 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 we're very, very clear about that. We're going to be very disciplined about that. So we're going to say, these are our categories. Now we've got to figure out what gifts to put in them. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and read verses 8 to 11 again, the, the passage I just read to you guys and we read together, you're probably going to have a difficult time neatly separating them into either speaking or serving gifts. Now, I think you could make a pretty sound argument that all the gifts that he mentions there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 11, you could categorize them as all speaking gifts. That speaking, utterance, speech, oratory, that is a major emphasis in 1 Corinthians. And in fact, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, tongues, prophecy, even faith. I mean, faith has to be exhibited or demonstrated in some way in order for it to be recognized. In every case, you could probably make an argument that these are categorized as speaking gifts. But on the other hand, if they're all for the common good, well, they're serving gifts, of course, right? I mean, they're to serve the body. So even using Peter's categories that he explicitly lists, I'm still having to use some degree of inference to try to put them in categories. Now, the reason you would want to put them in any kind of category is not because you're, you know, it's necessary to try to understand or best interpret what, what the Scriptures are teaching, but it's just to help us along in terms of thinking about application. And where this actually will come into play is it's going to come into play a little bit later on uh, down the road as we continue on in our study when we really start talking about uh, different kinds of categories and how to think about the gifts um, uh, other, other gift categories that we're going to obviously dig into as we go on and kind of, kind of expand and broaden our study are, are, for example, the gifts of office, you could call it. And again, that's just my name. I mean, I'm sure someone else has used that name too or something like that, but you, you, could, you could use a different name. But the gifts of office, for example, you see this in chapter 12. If you just skip down to verse 28, Paul there says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. He says that's sort of the gift of, of an office in the life of the church. Or Ephesians 4, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So in two different occasions, you have this sort of this gift of office to the church. Or you could use the category of edifying gifts, gifts that are explicitly uh, intended to edify and build up the church. 
Romans chapter 12, you might say this is a really good listing of edifying gifts. You see there in chapters, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. So you could look at that and say, that's a good, that's a good category. That, that helps me kind of think about you know, how to, how to you know, evaluate the use of the gifts or, or kind of shepherd others in understanding the gifts or even think about the gifts that I need to be using and that the Lord's given me. Edifying gifts. Another category or designation that we're going to discuss in great detail in the weeks ahead has to do with operational time and place of the gifts. You'll have the categories that are used of permanent gifts versus temporary gifts. And you then get into discussions about, uh, you know, sort of uh, understanding the gifts as those that are um, uh, for today and all the gifts continue as they did when they were given in the first century. Or you have those that would say, well, no, there are some that were for a time and they, they aren't manifested in the same way in the life of the church today. They're, they were temporary. So you have those kind of designations. So you could have permanent, I suppose, edifying gifts and possibly temporary edifying gifts. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you can really break this down. These are going to be helpful categories. And in fact, one of the, one of the categories that I haven't mentioned yet is also a designation that you find in Scripture, and it's what we're going to kind of zero our attention in on a little bit today. Because today we're going to sort of explore just a little bit. Not, we're we're going to get in much more depth as we move forward in our study, our broader study. But we're going to begin to explore the gifts of healing and the working of miracles that Paul lists here at the end of verse 9 in chapter 12 and the beginning of verse 10. And I think it's pretty clear from Scripture that... These gifts, among others, but these gifts in particular, they fall into a very unique and a very significant category that we'll just refer to as sign gifts. Sign gifts. Scripture might refer to them as just signs. But since we're talking about gifts, spiritual gifts, and we're in this study of, of the spiritual gifts that the Apostle Paul lists here, we'll just, we'll just add gifts, sign gifts. Sign enablements by the Spirit. So this is a, a, a unique category, a very specific category. And as I said, in the weeks ahead, uh, we will have a, much more to say about sign gifts. And we're going to, obviously, we're going to broaden our study and our, our field of vision to take up manifestation of signs even, into the old, even back in the Old Testament and, and on into the New Testament. So we're going to be kind of really unpacking this whole matter of the more miraculous sign-type gifts. Because after all, therein lies a bit of the controversy, therein lies a bit of the disagreement, confusion, that kind of thing. So we're going to spend no shortage of time trying to really unpack all of that. Um, But for today, let's just confine our discussion to what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with some help and some supporting references from a few other places in the New Testament. So today is really just going to be about us getting an initial handle on these two gifts that the Apostle Paul lists here in verses 9 and 10, of the gifts of healing and the working of miracles. Now both, both you'll notice, or you may not notice in the, in, the, in the English translation 
particularly of, of work. Yeah, it's plural there. So it is there. So what you'll notice is that both the gifts of healing and the working of miracles are in the plural form in both cases. This is likely to indicate the varied nature and manifestation of these gifts. And when we talk about healing, it's important that when you, when you look at this in the, the body of, of content that we have in Scripture, when you talk about healing, you're talking about the healing of various diseases. And in the context of the plural use of miracles... It's various diseases and or various instances of healing. But this is not likely a reference to an ongoing healing gift that would enable a person to, I don't know, maybe put together a website and start a YouTube channel and travel around the world and do crusades and that kind of thing. The plural version here is is not intended to kind of um, give to an individual some kind of sign gift of healing that they just go around and start wielding with people. The plural nature of this, and by the way, there are those, there are, there are uh, commentators and scholars who believe that these gifts continue in the life of the church today as they did then, and they are... Uh, and they would still say that the plural use here is a reference to their varied manifestation or the, the, the fact that you're healing various gifts. Yes, sir? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The healing gifts, if it was an ongoing ministry gift, that's a good point. Why, not, why are you spending your time in an arena and not at, at hospitals, right? That's a very practical way to look at it. And we're going to talk about that kind of more at length. Because, listen, here's the challenge for us. I'm going to go ahead and kind of, this is, this is, I say, sometimes I'll say things like, this is the challenge for us. What I mean is the challenge for me, and I really want it to be the challenge for you because I don't want to be alone in my misery of my own sin and my own weakness. But the challenge, I think, for, for us, uh, many of us, in this particular area is to infuse some of our thinking and some of our, our discussion about these things. Uh, what pops into our minds are, are the excesses that you see that are just so egregious and so uh, hurtful to the witness of Christ and even to individuals who are hurting and suffering. I mean, you have these things that just, they provoke us to just frustration and irritation uh, over the way in which the name of Christ and his gracious gifting of spiritual gifts to his people is, is um, manipulated and, and exaggerated and misused and used for personal gain. I mean, it's very, it's very provoking and, and disappointing and frustrating. The challenge for us is to not allow that to be the lens through which we're trying to understand what the Scripture teaches, right? And there is no shortage of biblical content that will help us emphasize that very point. Why are they not in hospitals? Plenty of it. In fact, we're going to touch on one today. It just so happens. Not not for that reason, but just because the the narrative itself uh, would lend itself to that kind of uh, important question. So again, you'll notice healing is, in the plural, gifts of healings. That's literally gifts of healings. 
And so the idea is that there would be episodic manifestations of the Spirit in which someone with this disease got healed. And then another occurrence at another time in which you have this episode in which someone is healed of a completely different kind of disease in a different situation. So the plural is to indicate that kind of varied occasion and varied manifestation of a disease and therefore of a different healing that takes place. Now when it comes to the actual healing itself, I'm just going to go with what John Calvin said about this particular gift. Here's what John Calvin said. I'll, I'll read it slowly so you can, if you want to write this down, you can write it down. John Calvin said, by the gift of healings, everyone knows what is meant, period. That's all Calvin said. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he said, by the gift of healings, everyone knows what it's meant. Now on to the next thing. Now, I think that he said that, or at least I surmise that he may have said that, because it is pretty obvious, especially in the content of Scripture. It's very obvious. What you have in in healings are instantaneous eradication of known and observable diseases, physical deformities, or impairments. That's what you see in the New Testament. You don't see, you know, you don't see this psychosomatic kind of thing going on. You don't see, you know, just the healing of a sore neck. I have nothing against people with sore necks being healed. I hope that you're healed today. I'm just making the point that when you talk about healings, gifts of healings, signs of healings, you are literally talking about instantaneous restoration of deformed extremities, immediate restoration of lame people who have been lame since birth, standing up and walking. Blind people, blind from birth, not able to see, beggars, unable to care for themselves, immediately receiving sight. People, visibly covered and eaten up with leprosy, immediately healed. And every visible, observable to everyone indication of the disease eradicated completely. That's, that's what's in view here when you talk about healings. Last week, I read an article about getting your healing, having faith and getting your healing. I don't know if you were here and remember that, but that's sort of the tone and temper of what you find today in a lot of the more word-faith kinds of, of uh, um, sort of practices that, that somehow, as a result of the finished work of Christ on the cross, and in referencing Isaiah's statement about, you know, by his wounds we are healed, that there is a present-day, current healing of your physical ailments that is yours, if you are in Christ, to claim by faith. And you can get your healing if you just have enough faith, if you just exercise enough faith, if you just put your faith to work kind of thing, if you just speak your healing by faith into existence. That is not what you find in the New Testament when it speaks of healing. 
you are, you are seeing signs that are being manifest. And you see the same thing with miracles. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute with the, with, with, with the matter of signs. But you see the same thing with miracles. Miracles is also plural. Various types of miracles performed on various occasions. But in the same way as healings, it's not an indication of an ongoing or common manifestation. Like someone is just given miracle working power, a gift that is just theirs, and they just go around and they're just constantly performing miracles. Now, we have, I think, a, a general and observable indication that that's not the case, and that's not what was going on in 1 Corinthians. Because can you imagine the necessity of narrative, of documentation, of inscripturation, of someone who would have been given the gift of miracle-working power in all of the tales that would need to be told of them manifesting that gift in the life of the church. You have none of that at all. So we have to kind of pay attention not only to what's in the text, but also what's by the work, by the, the sovereign prerogative of the Spirit, what's intentionally left out to kind of understand the, the big picture of what God is talking about here through the Apostle Paul, what he's teaching here about this, these sign gifts of healing and workings of miracles. This term miracles is the term we get dynamite from. It's the term for power, dunamis. It means power, might, strength, force. It refers to a demonstration of awe-inspiring divine power this working of miracles. We'll talk more in detail about this as we go on, but just note that, that we're, we're likely talking about gifts in particular healings and miracles as, as episodic in nature, as varied and episodic in nature. Now, to, to kind of begin to think about these as sign gifts, turn with me for a moment to John chapter 2. This is, a, am sure for many of you, a familiar account. The wedding at Cana is my uh, subject heading in, in my version of the scriptures. John chapter 2. Now, this basically in John's uh, account of the Gospels, this is... This is sort of, you know, following uh, uh, ba- his, uh, Jesus' baptism and then his calling of the disciples. And uh, then you have um, this event of this wedding in Cana. And I want to just kind of pick up the narrative there at the beginning in, in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I want you to first note the absolutely mundane nature of what is taking place here. Jesus has been calling his disciples. The the biggest event so far is his baptism, but at this point he's just been saying, come follow me. And then you have this event of the wedding at Cana where it just so happens that Jesus' mother is there, and, you know, Jesus got an invite. I'm sure it was a nice invite. I'm sure, you know, it was a nice script and everything. But he and his disciples were invited to this wedding. It was just, they went to a wedding. 
And it says, when, wine, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, for those of you young men, and don't, please don't talk to your mothers that way. I, I, <laughs> there's purpose in the way Jesus is beginning to speak to his mother and calling her woman. So we're not going to get into that. But anyway, um, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water, now tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It would stand to reason that if Jesus like, creates wine, it's going to be the good wine, right? I mean, that's kind of obvious. Anyway, he says, this, look, I'm, I'm, pick this back, verse 10. He says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. And then look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was a sign miracle. The intent of the miracle was to manifest his glory such that his disciples believed in him. You have this emerging reality that's taking place where Jesus is beginning his ministry and calling his disciples. And this is the first time he does this. So it does raise a question. Jesus incarnate for 30 years of his life wasn't going around and healing people and performing miraculous works all the time. That's an interesting observation on its own. But the point here is that Jesus, with his disciples, who he had called to himself and was at the very forefront of his ministry and work and his journey ultimately to the cross, this is the first sign that he performs, and it is to manifest his glory, and as a result, his disciples believed in him. It was a sign that lended credibility to him as the Messiah and confidence in their belief and fellowship. That was the purpose. I love John MacArthur's statement. (laughs) He says, The miracle was not to improve the party or to show off great power to the curious. By the way, there's extra-biblical material out there where it has accounts of Jesus when he's a boy, like, you know, killing some other kid with his, just with his word. Or, um, what's another one? Um, he, he, would use his, he would use his miracle power to help his dad's carpentry business and that kind of thing. This says this is the first sign that he performed. And John MacArthur kind of taps into that, that sentiment. He says, this miracle was not to improve the party or to show off great power to the curious. 
Even with Jesus, the working of miracles, just as the, whole, the work of healing, was confirmation of His coming as Messiah, the carrier of God's power and message. Near the end of his gospel, John says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why he did them. That's what they were about. They were signs. They were signs. Jesus performed miracles, MacArthur goes on, to prove that God was being revealed in him, that is, in Jesus. Walter Chantry, in his book, Signs of the Apostles, says it like this, Though many mercies were conferred upon men through Christ's miracles, their primary purpose was not to bring compassionate aid to society. They served first and foremost to call attention to the divine authority of his teaching. Yes, there was a tremendous exhibition of compassion, in the healing ministry of Christ. But what do we also know about the response to Jesus' miracles and works of healing? Other than the fact that many people saw his miraculous works and still didn't believe. Many people were witnesses, possibly even recipients of his healing, likely recipients of his healing power, and yet they didn't believe. So it wasn't just to draw out people's belief or confidence in him, but they were signs for the world to see, a testimony that he is who he says he is. You can believe it or not, but it's true. B.B. Warfield uh, says this, or said this, I should say, in his his book, uh, Counterfeit Miracles, I believe is what it's called. He says, when our Lord came down to earth... He drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that, in effect, he banished disease and death from Palestine for three years of his ministry. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration. His point is that we, we, we can't even really conceive of the magnitude and the impact and the import of this explosion of miracle working and healing power that came on the scene when Jesus was on the earth. Shane's been talking about it when he talked about him, Jesus going back to the temple and healing everyone that came to him. He would go into a city and he would heal Every one of their diseases. Now, it, we, we pass over that kind of narrative somewhat casually sometimes because, you know, we've read it before or it's, it's not necessarily the main point or whatever. We're just kind of working our way through the narrative. But just stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus comes onto the scene, and at that point, that specific and consummately important point in, in human history, Sign working miracles attesting to him as the Messiah explode in the entire region where he was operating his ministry. In a, in a number that's too many to count. John says there, there were way more. We just couldn't, I mean, I can't include them all. There's too many to retell. 
These are signs of the Messiah. Now, I want you to consider for a moment, and we're going to talk about even the same kind of operation of God in the use of miraculous powers that you even see in in Old Testament, uh, prominent Old Testament periods. But I want you to consider for a moment the diminishment of the significance of these kinds of sign gifts when they are to be considered so common. Just read part one of this article and then part two of this article, and then you can claim your healing. It is such a diminishment of the intent and purpose of the signs that were were demonstrated to point to Jesus as Messiah. Believe him. Believe his words. He is God incarnate. Not only that, what we note is that these signs and wonders, these sign gifts, were also granted to the apostles and some of their closest associates as as they were being witnesses in Judea and Samaria, the, 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 the gifts, these sign gifts were also accompanying them. And we have this reference in Hebrews. Hebrews obviously written to Jews, the, the testimony of Jesus as Messiah written to the Jewish people. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter 1, and then I'm going to skip down to the first four verses of chapter 2. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is unique, people. (laughs) This is not common. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then the chapter 1 continues to recount Old Testament references of the excellencies of him compared to the angels, the superiority of Christ over the angels. And then it picks up again in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This puts all of this into the frame of, do you see the Savior? Don't miss it. How shall we escape this kind of just retribution if we neglect such a great salvation? Based upon everything that has been seen, everything that has been attested to. And yet in our day and time, we want to diminish all of this to some kind of trinket that we can just get if we just follow some formula. Cite some kind of 
spiritual incantation. So this, this passed on to the apostles as, as they extended out from Jesus, as he ascended there in Acts chapter 1, and, and he tells them that you're going to be my witnesses, you're going to go. Now's not the time for the kingdom to come on earth. You're going to go and you're going to be my witnesses. And you have the Apostle Paul speaking about this very attestation of signs and wonders in his ministry. In Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 21, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul, Saul at the time, blinded him and called him and commissioned him as the apostle to the Gentiles. That is a distinctive calling that obviously the pages of Scripture, we see that playing out. It says, in Christ Jesus, then he goes on and says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Signs and wonders with the apostle as confirmation that he is bringing the message of salvation from God and extended beyond to the other apostles. We'll, we'll, we'll look at more broadly at this, as I said, in a future study. But then come back to the immediate context of Paul's time with the Corinthians and his instruction to the Corinthians. And what you find in 2 Corinthians is another reference to this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So, when we come back to this particular reference in this list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the second part of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10, to gifts of healing and working of miracles... These were signs. These were not trinkets. These were manifestations of awe-inspiring and message-confirming power to demonstrate the authority of the words being spoken and the reliability and trustworthiness of the messenger speaking them. I don't know, I know some of you have had experience in various more charismatic uh, church circles, and you might have some broader experience with kind of how these different gifts are taught and, and sought to be manifested. But what I can tell you in my own personal experience is that I went through a period, I think I alluded to this a number of weeks ago, but I went through a period of time in college where I was sort of, you know, in, a, in this dabbling mode of trying to kind of figure out what this is all about, and is this for me, and how, you know, and I can just tell you the, the, the gift, 
Sometimes the painful, when I say gift, not spiritual gift, but the painful, sometimes painful gift of hindsight, when you look back on your life and you begin to kind of think about what was really going on in your heart and mind and what were you motivated by. I go back to, to that period of time, and I'm telling you, I, I know with 100% certainty, as I was becoming a bit enamored with this whole work of the Spirit kind of gifts, miraculous kind of let's see something big happen kind of thing in my mind, it was all about me. It was all about what I wanted, what I thought I needed to see. I want more. I need more. I need to see more. And I can tell you that what is quite clear is that the nature of these kinds of activities in the life of the church, it so quickly becomes about the show. It is not about an invitation to a wedding that your mom's going to be at and you, and you happen to go. Do, do you see what I'm saying? When you, when you look at the Gospels and you see these things working out, we're going to actually look at specific examples of Paul's healing people and, and Peter. You, you look at these kinds of things and it's, it's as they are going. They're on the way. They're, they're proclaiming a message. They're encountering someone. It's, it's as they go, and there's something that is done to, to confirm the message, to confirm that this is of God, to confirm that this is the Messiah, to confirm that I am a spokesman and I have been commissioned by Christ himself. And it's certainly not to garner attention or praise or give them something more. In fact, what we see over and over and over again is the testimony and the witness and the description of suffering in the, in the instance of Christ and the Apostle Paul in particular of ultimate death in the face of all this miraculous power and witness and testimony. Jesus had no place to lay his head, he said. And he wound up false accusations, obviously the sovereign will of God, but crucified. The Apostle Paul martyred in Rome lived in poverty and want, persecuted. These are not men who went around wielding their spiritual gifts of healing and miracle-working power so that they could gain a following. We need to pay attention to the actual text of Scripture, to the narratives that we see in the Gospels, to the descriptions that we see in other places in the New Testament, and we need to take note of that and have it inform our thinking about these gifts. Now, in closing, I've got, I'm going to take one more minute to just say this one statement. God still intervenes in history in miraculous ways. Okay? And God heals miraculously. Sometimes through prayers, as a, using the means of the prayers of the saints, and other times just as a sovereign, gracious act. Someone has cancer one day, and they don't have cancer the next day. Those kinds of things can happen. God does do that. He can do that. He does do that. I believe that that is the case. But this is not what we're talking about. This is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. 
So just keep in mind that as we continue to move forward in this study, nothing that I say, whether I intend it to or not, can limit the power and authority of God to do what he wants, when he wants, and in the manner that he wants. But we need to understand what is being taught from the scriptures, and we want to make sure that we're testing what we're seeing and what we're hearing in our spheres of interaction and observation in the world and make sure that we are walking in the truth. And that's the whole point. And more importantly, that we are, we are just serving and, and allowing the Spirit to, to work His gifts through us in, in service to the body of Christ for the common good. Okay, we're done. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. <laughs>